This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. We've all watched politicians being grilled. We've all longed to penetrate that slick veneer and force them to answer the damn question. But there's an art to doing that, and it's one that Rob Burley has learned in his many years as a TV producer. He's the author of a new book about political interviews, Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? Welcome to The Bunker, Rob. Thank you very much. You know, what struck me most when reading this book is how hard it usually is to get politicians to say anything interesting. Mm. They are hardwired not to, and the more senior they are, the more difficult it is to get them to say something meaningful. But it's compelling TV. We want to see politicians put on the spot. We can't do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we rely on the media to do it and do it better than we can. And interviewers try all sorts of techniques to penetrate that armour. And your book goes into loads of detail Mm -hmm. about how you helped them to do that. Who's the absolute best at the job who you've worked with? And you've worked with a lot of the pros. The The best interviewer? Yes. Oh, well, it depends what you want from an interviewer, really. It's the different ones have different uh, skills. In terms of the sort of, you know, the forensic, prosecutorial, political interview, it's hard to get past Andrew Neil, mm-hmm. really, because um, he is the, he, he's the best briefed of every, anyone, anyone you'll ever meet. I mean, if he comes to the meeting, he'll know more than you do about the thing you've been preparing for for a week because he just reads everything and consumes massive amount of data and content. So for him, preparing him for an interview is really about working on the strategy of actually how we're going to conduct the interview and how we're going to go about utilising all that knowledge and expertise to actually hopefully learn something about what the politician's stands for or what they have to say, or make them say something, you know, a bit less than guarded, at least revealing in some way. Uh, so he's, he's very, very good um, and very precise and forensic. So there's, but there are others with different techniques. I mean, Emily Maitlis is one that always also comes to mind. You always you notice you you can see when you when you work with her, you can sort of see on screen the work you've done because she, I compare in the book to sort of a, like a thoroughbred sort of not a racehorse but an, an athlete, say a sportswoman who is so naturally skillful but also want, is willing to be coached. So the combination of you know her and yourself and all the expertise you bring will bring great interviews. There are others. Andrew Marr is a different kind of thing. It's a much more gentle sort of approach. And, you know, you, I think sometimes that can work because people feel that they're drawn in a little bit more than just sort of bashed around the head. Jonathan Dimbleby was a very, very good forensic interviewer. Paxman, of course, brought a different thing, which was a sense of TV drama and a, a sheer sort of force of personality that puts 
politician in a very uncomfortable place often. Yeah, he wasn't one of the ones who was good at getting them to relax and open up. There was that no. legendary asking Michael Howard the same question. Was yeah. it nine times? No, it's 12 or 13, 12. I think. Yeah, it's a great moment that. And actually, it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of a moment of, t- of TV political interview panto. But actually, for me, it's a really significant moment when... So what I enjoy is when people decide they're not going to play by the rules any longer. And Jeremy decided that day that he just had enough of this. Well, the rules, the rules before that really were if a politician doesn't answer the question maybe two or three times, Andrew Neil says three times, then you just move on. And everyone's, ha- everyone's sort of happy that that's the unwritten rule of the game. And if you don't do that, you make them look ridiculous. And I think Jeremy decided on that day that he just had enough. In fact, he tells me, he said, you know, I, I just had enough of the bullshit. But of course, it didn't really work, did it? In terms of him telling him the answer. In terms of him telling him the answer, yeah. No, but what did it do? It it probably ruined any chance Michael Howard had at that point of becoming leader of the Conservative Party. So it was consequential. And, and according to, to Jeremy, um, Michael knew that clearly after the interview. I mean, Howard's been very sort of you know good-natured about it since. Um, but I think he knew that because that rule had been broken, he'd come out of it very, very badly. And that's why it was a valuable thing to do. And that, But that's the kind of point we'd reached even then. And you mentioned Emily Maitlis, but yeah. political interviewing, it used to be entirely a man's job. Mm. In my youth, certainly. And it yeah. isn't anymore, is it? There are a lot more female, strong interviewers coming through. Yeah, Michelle Hussain is really good, I think. On today? Yeah, I really, really rate her highly. She doesn't seem to have any of that kind of baggage of sort of, um, you know, lobby background, you know, too close to politicians, incredibly precise, polite, but very, very clear minded. She's very good. I mean, there are, there are, I mean, I work with Beth Rigby now at Sky News. She's sort of, she's more of the traditional sort of confrontational to some extent, um, certainly sort of uh, uh, dogged in, in her attempts to get answers. There's Sophie Ridge, who I think, you know, I think she was 32 when she started her own show on Sky News. I always thought from the minute she started that she had some, some authority and, and gifts that were, that were considerable. So, yeah, that's changed somewhat. I mean, the, the, the great classic days were dominated by men. We've actually alighted on a good thing that's happened there. Yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in the sort of evolution of the political interview, but most of it's a bit depressing because the old days sort of feel like the best days. Were they, though? Because, I mean, the first TV interviews were actually pretty sycophantic. It wasn't for a while that they got into their stride. What started to go wrong for you? I think what happened was that Robin Day happened, right? Yeah. That's what changed things. So before Robin Day, I mean, people would have seen clips of um, usually at airports, very posh men in hats saying things like, right, I mean, is there anything you'd like to share with the country before you head off to the continent? And then they would, uh, they would then say something sort of stilted. Robin Day in 1958 um, had an interview with um, Harold Macmillan, then Prime Minister. And I don't know how he did it, but he, he made an arrangement to interview him for 13 minutes, which at that time was unprecedented. And in it, he dared ask him sort of what sound now very innocuous questions, but which are actually uh, quite impertinently, regarded as quite impertinent at the time about the future of the foreign secretary and things like that. So that invented the that invented the form, really. And Sir, Sir Robin Day, as he, well, he became Sir Robin, sort of pioneered it. It sort of started to go wrong after that, immediately after that, because well, as I recount in the book, it wasn't very long before you know, Harold Wilson, Edward Heath in the 60s decided to do political interviews on television and allowed themselves to be subject to scrutiny, but also began that dance around truthfulness or untruthfulness you know where are we going to do the interview what 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 are we going to cover in the interview who's going to interview me attempting to control the process that they felt was perhaps out of control if they didn't try and exert some discipline 
And actually, Edward Heath, there's a quote in the book, Edward Heath essentially describes Man- Mandelsonian on-message approach to politics, to, sorry, to interviews that was pioneered, well, apparently pioneered by Mandelson under New Labour. But he was doing it really, he was describing that back in the 60s, you know, 30 years before it was, it was fashionable. So they, they started to try and get control of it, which is understandable because, it's, you know, it's a two-way street, but that leads eventually to people having this very tiresome and familiar to us all approach of not answering questions, closing things down, just repeating lines. Or, in the case of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, and look how they ended up, um, you know, not doing it at all, running away from any scrutiny of any significant kind. So, that, so yeah, in a way, it starts, you know, from the beginning, it, it, I guess it starts to it starts to become a struggle and a, a battle. So it was the interviewees and not the interviewers who changed and they changed their they changed their approach and they got wary and mm-hmm. they, in a way you could say, got wise to the strategies of the interviewers sure. and managed to evade scrutiny in that way. Yeah. You're very good on who, who loves the camera and who hates it because, I mean, you, you, politicians can stand or fall on this. Yeah. Um, and Theresa May, for example. Yeah. <laughs> even, even saying it just makes me feel a bit sad. <laughs> Uh, when I, rem- I remember the, the whole, the whole sort of spectacle, everything around it. You know, before we started, when it was happening, afterwards with Theresa May was just, just depressing and and non-communicative and uh, really a pointless exercise. Nothing was said. She would just mouth impossible to understand, meaningless phrases. And according to her advisor Casey Perrier, who I spoke to for the book, had an attitude that was really this, which was, I act in good faith. I'm a politician of, with, with honour and good judgment, and I made this decision. By all means, ask me about it. But after a, couple of, okay, after a couple of responses, I really don't think there's much point in talking any further. How dare you question my sort of integrity or my good faith? And given that was her attitude, that's, you know, that's, there's no wonder then that she couldn't actually in, involve herself in a dialogue that was meaningful. So she hated the camera, really. I mean, it's, 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 funny. it's a funny thing, politics. It seems to attract introverts who know that they're going to be on the stage. Yeah, people describe um, Boris Johnson that way because, you know, they say, actually, he's really quite introverted. You expect him to be an extrovert, but he's not. Now, there's a man who ought to understand, and I think you say in the book does understand the value of journalism by dint of having been a journalist himself Mm. and being interrogated. But who, you know, for years we were all longing, I think, well, I was, for him to be undone by a really good interview and for him to be brought down. And he, you know, however often he lied, quite frankly, and he dissembled, he wasn't. And he was able to carry on getting away with it. Mm. Let's just uh, hear a clip of him talking on The Andrew Marr Show about why he didn't declare his affair with Jennifer Arcuri when he was London mayor, despite awarding her public money. She was certainly a friend of yours. Did you declare that interest? Look, what what I can tell you is that I was very, very proud of everything that we did in uh, City Hall uh, to promote the public interest Did you and to promote interest? the interests of London and everything was done in accordance with the code that you have just recited. So you did recited. declare the interest? And everything was done with full propriety. How did he manage to carry on for so long despite despite the best efforts of interviewers to expose him? Well, it's interesting because you, you as you were talking there, I was thinking you, you said you know, an interview that revealed who he was or, or you know, took the mask off. I mean, there was one. There's certainly one, at least. Well, there's two I can think of, actually. One in which I was involved with and one I wasn't involved with. The first, the one I wasn't involved with, was with Eddie Mayer, who was sitting in for Andrew Marr in, I think, 2013, and in a very forensic way, 
uh, ran through some of the sort of personal um, uh, sort of indiscretions, to say the least, of Boris Johnson down the years, lying, being involved in threats to journalists, those kind of things. Um, well, it wasn't him threatening anybody, but it was it was him being apparently willing to help someone who wanted to do that. Um, and so that was very revealing. And Boris Johnson at the time was asked about it and seemed to acknowledge that it was fair enough. But he didn't really pay a price. I mean, that's the point. So it's he, the interviews can be effective, but he won't pay a price. The other case, which was probably my favourite ever interview I ever constructed and worked on, was in 2019 when Johnson was running for the... Um, the Tory leadership and up against Jeremy Hunt in the final, the final sort of two. And we had, the, we, and as part of that, there was a special show, which was an interview with both the candidates. And we knew that, because the, the issue then was Brexit, obviously. And, and, and the, the big question that he had to answer was what happened if there was a no deal Brexit, which he seemed to be relaxed about. Um, and we knew that he had a formulation, which was, he would talk about the GATT treaty from 1947, he would usually say, he would mention that because that's a nice little detail to give the impression of grasp. Um, and we knew that he very much liked to talk about paragraph 5B of that treaty because that would suggest that we could continue to trade on current terms with a, with a trading partner like the EU. We knew he was comfortable with that, but but, suggest, but thought to ourselves that he wouldn't be, go beyond that. He's like a, you know, someone in a seminar, who, a bit of a hangover, who's kind of, who's, who's grasped one little bit of information and thinks that'll with, his, with bluster, get him through. So what we did was we danced him towards that little topic uh, and he came with us merrily, um, but exposed himself to the next question, which was, what do you think about paragraph 5C? And of course, he didn't know the answer and he had to admit that he didn't know the answer. And it was a moment of revelation. It was a moment where it didn't work anymore. The blustering and the, and the bullshit was no longer effective. But he was elected by the Tory membership shortly afterwards. So it didn't matter to them. They probably thought classic Boris, you know, hilarious. Uh, you know, he's, he's a buccaneer. I mean, what can, we can't really control that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's talk a bit more about Brexit, because there was a lot of criticism among Remainers after the referendum, that the BBC in particular hadn't done a good enough job of scrutinising the Leave campaign. Was that fair in your view? Well, I mean, I can only really, I mean, I can talk a, broadly a bit about the BBC, but in terms of my own work there, I was I'm editing the Andrew Marr show. So mm. um, I went back to those, for this programme, it was a painful experience, actually. I went back to, um, sorry for this book, I went back to the um, all the episodes of the Marr show across that that period of time between February and June. And I think we did test both sides pretty rigorously. I'm afraid that the, I think what's, you know, Remain, the problem we had right from the very beginning, well, Remain had from the beginning in the first interview with David Cameron, was that here were people who would, here were people who forever told us that the European Union was essentially a bad thing, that they didn't like and we needed to get away from, that we should remain. So it, they were the leading people. And there were, I remember there was an editorial referred to in the very first programme, which was, I think, Sajid Javid. I can't remember what job he was doing at the time, in which he said, with a heavy heart, I, so I suggest we should vote 
to remain, and I've seen the Prime Minister's deal. So it, it, it was it's hardly it was hardly a ringing endorsement, and it never really got going. And watching it back, it seems to me that those problems were the real reason why it happened the way it did, and that it was quite obvious that the wind was behind the sails of Leave because they could just say things, they could sort of assert things about the future that were just have turned out to not be true. Um, but were appealing and could be got behind compared to a sort of begrudging, mm, I guess we should remain from the leading lights in the, um, in, in, the, in the government. So in other words, I think it's easy to blame the BBC. There's like, yes, that, 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 I think the, the pe- people on the Remain side were very keen to blame the BBC for this thing going wrong. I think they should probably think about whether they got it wrong, whether those people who campaigned and formulated the, ar- the arguments, they should look at themselves first, perhaps. One of those claims, of course, was the £350 million for the mm-hmm. NHS on the side of a bus. Yeah. And you reveal in the book that a senior BBC editor advised you not to look into that. Did that frustrate you? Yeah, I mean, advise is a weak word for it. Um, you know, instructed, really. Yeah. Um, so Robbie Gibb um, was my boss. And, I've, you know, to be, to be straight up about it, I've, got, uh, had, I've always had a, a good relationship with him and we worked together for many years. And uh, so I was actually surprised when the morning after the referendum, I went into his office and we talked about what happens next journalistically. Where do we go, go with this? And I said... You know, not exclusively, but one of the things we have to do is test the claims that were made, including notoriously that 350 million by the Leave campaign as we move forward. So, you know, were, were there, when they presented the case they presented for Leave, would it be borne out by reality? I mean, I mean I'll leave people to judge whether that's what's happened with that. And I was surprised, to be honest, to receive a sort of horrified response from him, which was that, no, we shouldn't do that. In fact, don't do that. Because we, and his rationale for it, and I believe this was his rationale, was that people will see see the BBC, which already had this kind of reputation as being a metropolitan, London-based, you know, middle-class, Romaniac kind of elite organisation, would be accused of attempting to relitigate all the arguments if we went into the future after the referendum result, talking about the campaign rather than talking about what colour passport we might have or whatever it might be. And I just thought this was nonsense, to be to be perfectly honest. It seemed to me just as after, you know, you wouldn't have a general election and say, well, that's done now. They said what they said and we'll just move forward into, into, the, into the future. It's part of accountability that when you, when you stand for something, and obviously a referendum campaign is different from a government programme, but it's still, it was a future that was posited. It needed to be interrogated going forward. And, and actually, despite the instruction... Um, I just sort of disregarded it in, regard, in relation to what I was doing, which was the Andrew Marr show. We, you know, we did ask those questions and we did continue to, to kind of examine it. Looking back at the Labour years yeah. with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, it was an extraordinary partnership in a way because Blair was a TV natural yeah. and Brown very obviously wasn't. No. Um, and that didn't seem to matter too much until Brown became PM and yeah. started having to take the lead. What was your approach to trying to find out what Gordon Brown was thinking and to try to extract yeah, what you could from him because he was a notoriously enigmatic, mm. introverted individual. Probably, the, probably. I mean, with, along with Theresa May, the most difficult. Again, very similar in a way, quite introverted, spoke in sort of pre, pre-constructed lines and actually bequeathed, by the way, to future generations of Labour politicians, a kind of inability to actually speak. So I don't, you know, I'm, 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 it's hard to remember whether anything was ever effective with him. I guess the only thing you could demonstrate was his inability to communicate, if you see what I mean. <laughs> I mean, he did it on his own, but you know what I mean? By, by whatever you tried, he just came back with this stuff, as Theresa May later did. It just sort of t- told his own story, but I don't think it was really possible to, to get through. 
One of the most fascinating bits of the book is when you talk about the Newsnight interview with Russell Brand and Jeremy Paxman. Mm -hmm. You weren't necessarily expecting that to work, were you? No, I mean, Jeremy was very, very anti this uh, interview. <laughs> it fell to me to tell him. Ian Katz, the editor at the time, um, uh, told me that it was going to be we, this was happening, and, and, and it fell to me to tell Jeremy, which is obviously a joy. Um, and Jeremy wasn't particularly uh, convinced that there was any any merit in doing it. Um, and so it was. Ba- it, it was. It was the brief period of time where Russell Brand was seen as a sort of credible or significant figure in politics. And this culminated, I think, in Ed Miliband going to see him at his house in the 2015 election and people thinking this was going to be a significant positive for the Labour. didn't turn out that way. But back with the interview, you know, Jeremy didn't know why we were doing it. It felt to me very much like Russell was just trying on a bit of revolutionary Che Guevara kind of, um, you know, cosplay stuff. But actually the interview itself was a huge success on the measure that millions of people watched it. Beyond the TV moment, you know, it, it was one of those interviews where 12 million people watched it on YouTube, um, you know, on social media. So, some, and, and credit to Ian Katz because it, he was right. It, it did, it did, it, there was an appetite for it and, and for the encounter between some of this different, these two, these two figures from very different places. I don't know, I actually sort of re-watching it, kind of think, um, kind of think that Russell sort of won the day, as it were, in the interview because he ended up putting Paxman in a position where... He was sort of the one arguing for the establishment and for voting and playing it playing by the rules. And Russell was saying, "But ain't you sick of people lying to you all these years?" And I'm and I'm just being straight up, and you know, you can't handle it. And, and actually, Jeremy, when I spoke to him for the book, you know, sort of said that was a kind of fair enough criticism. I guess what that tells you is it's just much harder now to get people's attention for a political interview. You know, before there would have because there were fewer channels and far, far, far less political coverage than there is now. There were set piece interviews and and that was it. And now the volume of stuff going out is so great that I don't think people know where to look first. And they're often not even watching the channels or the TV where these are shown. Is that the biggest challenge to actually get people to pay attention again, to be curious enough, to be engaged enough, to care enough, to want to watch these interviews? Well, you'd ask yourself, what is the content we're inviting them to watch? Because no, no one's doing this. I mean, actually, only podcasts are doing the, the the equivalent thing, which is giving some time for ideas, you know, politics, intellectual kind of engagement to develop. What you have on TV most of the time is a sort of maybe seven or eight minute interview in which the politician is just usually, irrespective of the questions, just repeating a line. So no wonder people are turned off by it or, not, or uninterested. The only thing they're interested in then, and this is the trouble you end up with a sort of arms race of interviewers who think they want to be Jeremy Paxman or Andrew Neil by getting a moment that could be then put on social media and then become viral. So that becomes the goal. So you just don't get anywhere. I mean, look, what, I'm, what I argue for in this book is that we need to return to what was a very proud tradition, which was the long-form political interview. It may be a forlorn hope that I, when I make this plea to the to whoever I'm speaking to. And also it would lead probably to lots of programmes people might think were quite boring because there would be boring bits. Because sometimes policy and serious stuff is boring and challenging. And for the audience and for everybody, uh, you know, if, you want, if you're investing in your country and your politics, you need to do the hard yards as well. Um, and, and then it, but it's, it's not even available for people to do that. But also in the middle of that, somewhere there will be gold, which is there'll be moments when we actually learn something, when something consequential happens. And it's happened in the past. Uh, you know, we had, and the book spends a lot of time, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but it spends a lot of time on the, the Brian Walden interview with Mrs. Thatcher in 1989, which is sort of our Frost-Nixon moment. Yeah, tell us why that was so important. Well, okay, so there's one, the first thing is to make a comparison, okay? So in, uh, in, 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 in essence, we have 
Boris Johnson in 2019 hiding in a fridge on Great Morning, Good Morning Britain to avoid being asked some questions by, uh, by Susanna Reid and Piers Morgan. And at the, at the other end of the spectrum, we had an interview uh, in 1989 in the middle of a political crisis after the departure of Mrs. Thatcher's Chancellor, which was conducted on television and lasted for 46 minutes. That was her approach. Whatever you think of her politics, she was absolutely committed to going into the arena, arguing her case and standing up even in a, in a difficult moment to scrutiny. But its significance, I mean, this, there, and then there's significance of course, what did it lead to? I mean, arguably, and here's an argument why she shouldn't have done it, it was the beginning of the end of her premiership. There was a chink in the armour after that interview. And within a year, essentially a year later, she was gone. The other thing that's in the book, which I think is a different, you know, a different kind of significance, but it's a very powerful one, is the personal story behind that. Because Brian Walden, who was a Labour MP initially in the, in the getting to the Commons in the sixties, um, over time sort of moved to the right and essentially really lost um, his faith in socialism. He was more of a meritocrat, a grammar school boy, very like Thatcher in, in many ways. And he became a kind of Thatcher curious when she became leader of the uh, of the party in the in the mid seventies. Essentially, just to, to cut a long story short, there he becomes the TV interviewer. She becomes the leader of the opposition, and they come together on television and have real conversations about her ideas and he becomes very close to her so much so that in an extraordinary sort of revelation in 1983 um during the uh the, the campaign for the election that year when mrs thatcher was seeking a second term he is called very late at night to come and save um the script of a party election broadcast that's going to be the last plea to the country for a second term which is something he should never have done in, ter- in terms of journalistic ethics but it shows how clear how close he was to her and how, uh, and both ideologically and personally. Fast forward to 1989, and the expectation of a lot of people in the media and the Westminster bubble at the time was that this moment of reckoning for Mrs Thatcher after Lawson had gone had fallen to exactly the wrong person. It had fallen to a Thatcherite, essentially, who had a history of speaking to her respectfully, too respectfully, and allowing her to speak rather than holding her to account, which is a bit unfair, but I can see the argument. So Brian Walden had to go into that room and decide which way he was going to go. Was he going, was he going to honour his friendship and ideological commitment or was he going to sort of follow the journalism? And she went into that room thinking, well, Brian's my friend. He's bound to ask me some difficult questions about Nigel Lawson, but they won't last too long and it won't be too difficult. And Brian made his choice, which was that Brian chose either Brian or journalistic ethics. And that interview was was unprecedented with Mrs. Thatcher. You'd never, she, you could never lay a glove on Mrs. Thatcher in those days. And it was an extraordinary encounter. And, you know, they never spoke again. That was the end of their friendship. That takes real guts, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, and, and, and I think he was probably torn about it. You know, he, 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 I think he wondered, look, we'll never know. And the people that worked with him, some said he was, there was no question. Others say it was difficult for him, um, but he made that choice. Rob, thanks so much for talking to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? Searching for the Truth on Political TV is published by Mudlark. And if you enjoyed this episode of The Bunker, do think about supporting us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. I'm Rob Hutton, and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it. So I had to find someone to watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon. And I do get it. So I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis and Satin Sangara 
as we rewatch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts. Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters contributing editor, Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones, Kasia Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.